My name is Erin Kenny. I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and it's incredibly important that we talk about colon cancer in general because we have been seeing new cases of colorectal cancer in people under the age of 50 rising at an alarming rate over the past several decades. Colorectal cancer is the third most common type of cancer in the United States among both men and women. Before I dive into today's episode, I just want to remind you guys that all of my new probiotics have been up on my website for over a month now. I also have digestive enzymes and a stress support formula, and I have been receiving such amazing feedback on these supplements. I have spent over two years developing the perfect formula based on my one-on-one work in my private practice, and I am so proud to say that my supplements are third-party tested of the highest quality. So if you're interested in checking those out, you can go to nutritionrewired.com. Today's episode, I am really excited. I've actually learned a lot diving into the research and finding new clinical insights of things that I actually wasn't aware of, and I'm excited to bring that information to you. We're going to talk about warning signs of colon cancer in younger adults. We're going to talk about different types of testing that are available for assessing colon cancer as well as risk. We're also going to talk about dietary and lifestyle strategies that you can incorporate to prevent general types of cancers, but specifically colon cancer. We're going to talk about specific strains of probiotics, supplementation, natural remedies, and we're even going to go in depth into something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is actually quite common even if you're someone who's super healthy and you think that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease doesn't apply to you, you may be surprised to find that there are some tests that keep coming up on maybe your blood work or some warning signs that you can watch out for to see if you are at risk. So without further ado, let's dive in. So why are we seeing these alarmingly high increases in diagnosis of colon cancer among people who are under the age of 55. Cancer Treatment Centers of America reported that between 1995 and 2019, colon cancer nearly doubled from 11% to 20% in people under the age of 55. So why is there this uptick? Well, when you talk to the leading experts and you look at the evidence and research from what we have, nobody really knows for sure why colorectal cancer numbers are rising in young people. So while nobody knows for sure why colon cancer numbers are rising in people under the age of 50, we know that sedentary lifestyle, being overweight, obesity, smoking, heavy alcohol use, 
low fiber, high fat diets, or diets high in processed meats, as well as environmental factors, have all been associated with the disease. So all of these things can contribute to not just colon cancer risk, but cancer risk in general. And all of these things are factors and big problems in our society today. So let's talk about different types of testing in terms of prevention, screening, and actual diagnosis of colon cancer. The first one is a blood test called ColoGuard. ColoGuard is an FDA-approved home test where you can check for changes in DNA and blood in your stool. Either change could mean that a polyp or colon cancer is present. Another type of blood test, it's a DNA-based test, it actually looks for several different types of cancers. This is using advanced genomic sequencing to analyze the DNA in a blood sample and detect signals associated with the presence of cancer cells. Out of curiosity, I looked this up online, and you can pay $1,000 to get this through an independent telemedicine provider, or you can ask your healthcare provider to order it. The next test is a fecal immunochemical test, FIT, or a fecal occult blood test. And the purpose of these tests are they're stool tests, and they're used to detect blood in your stool, which can be a sign of colorectal cancer or precancerous polyps. This is included on the GI map that I use in my practice, and I've actually found a lot of patients to have blood in their stool, the fecal occult blood. However, a lot of times it does end up being just related to hemorrhoids, but it's really helpful because we're able to see if patients are experiencing the symptom, which is actually not visible to the human eye. So fecal occult blood is blood that you're not seeing when you go to the bathroom. It's blood that is incorporated into the stool. It can be even microscopic. So this is a really great way to assess early detection. Other tests include colonoscopy, right? This one I think most people are very familiar with. I would like to say that I'm not familiar with it, but I got my first test when I was in my 20s because my mom, when she was around the age of 18 or 20, she had some non-cancerous polyps. And because of the amount of digestive issues that I had been experiencing for the majority of my life, I was lucky enough to go through that myself. So a colonoscopy is when your gastroenterologist is going to insert a flexible tube into the rectum through the colon, and they're going to be able to see if there is any polyps, which could be precancerous, or if you have active colon cancer. This test is typically recommended every 10 years for average risk individuals starting at 45 years old or earlier, depending on certain risk factors. If you go in and you have maybe an abnormal polyp that isn't cancerous or you just have a polyp in general that's cancerous, they're more likely to have you come in every five years to keep you on their radar. And the last test is assessing for an inherited disorder called Lynch syndrome. So this is a genetic test. And having this syndrome increases the risk for developing several different types of cancers, including colon cancer endometrial, ovarian, and other types of cancers such as cancers of the stomach, the small intestine, the pancreas, the bile duct, urinary tract, and brain. Often this is something that is done before the age of 50, 
And it's very interesting to learn how this DNA mismatch, basically what it does is it is interfering with the repair process that fixes mistakes that occur when DNA is copied. So this is a test that I'm actually super interested in and might be adding it to uh, my long list of risk factor testing that I do on a yearly basis. So what are the warning signs of colorectal cancer in young adults? This was directly taken from cancer.gov. The problem with younger adults is that they aren't routinely screened for colon cancer because the disease is relatively rare in younger adults. The analysis showed in a period of three months to two years before people with colorectal cancer were diagnosed, four signs were more commonly reported in these individuals. Abdominal pain being number one, number two, rectal bleeding, three, diarrhea, and four, iron deficiency anemia. Having just one of these signs during this period was associated with nearly twice the likelihood of being diagnosed with early onset colorectal cancer as having none of the signs. Having three or more of these signs was associated with six times the likelihood of being diagnosed with the disease. The findings were published May 4th in the Journal of National Cancer Institute. Nearly 20% of younger adults with early onset colorectal cancer had one or more of these four signs between three months to two years before a colon cancer diagnosis. Abdominal pain was the most common sign appearing in 11.6% of people with cancer versus 77 in controls, but rectal bleeding had the strongest association with a diagnosis of early onset colorectal cancer followed by iron deficiency anemia. The more signs a person has, the more likely they're going to be diagnosed with the disease. So this is so important to be aware of. Advocate if your doctor is not going to be assessing for colon cancer if you're experiencing these types of things and consider some of the testing that you can even do at home to help start looking into how you can take preventative measures. Now let's dive into prevention, which is really the meat of today's episode. First, we're going to talk about dietary interventions. Whole food, plant-forward diets, rich in fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds, these have all been associated with a reduced risk of colon cancer. Fiber in particular, which is what we find in a lot of these foods, can actually promote our regular bowel movements, which helps to prevent the amount of time that carcinogens, which are cancer-promoting compounds, are intact with the colon lining. So this is really important. If you're someone that's really constipated, you've been struggling with constipation for a long period of time, it might not seem like a big deal. You know, maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable, but when we talk about cancer, colon cancer risk, when you're constipated, that's allowing more time for the cells of your colon to be in contact with potential cancer-promoting compounds. Now, ideally, we also want to make sure that we're not eating a lot of those types of things, but in general, that's a great reason to increase your fiber intake. Specific vegetables, the cruciferous vegetable family, things like broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, kale, these all contain compounds with anti-cancer properties. 
This is why I throw a fourth of a cup of broccoli sprouts into my smoothie every single day. The main reason why broccoli sprouts are my number one choice is because they contain sulforaphane, which is a sulfur-containing compound that has antioxidant activity, it supports phase two detoxification, it's anti-inflammatory, and in research, it's been shown to inhibit the growth of colon cancer cells by inducing apoptosis, which is basically programmed cell death. It's also been shown to inhibit cell proliferation and interfere with cancer signaling pathways. I grow my own broccoli sprouts at home, but you can absolutely find them at local grocery stores. They're just not always the best quality. The next dietary tip is to limit red and processed meats. Studies have shown that high consumption of red and processed meats are associated with an increased risk of colon cancer. The processing of red meat, especially by frying or grilling at high temperatures, causes this chemical change in the proteins of these animal products, and this can result in the formation of carcinogenic heterocycline amines. These are basically cancer-promoting compounds. A recent meta-analysis of 21 prospective large cohort studies indicated that the risk of colon cancer increases linearly with higher intakes of red and processed meats. The risk increased by 14% for every daily 100 grams increased of red meat intake. In our house, we really focus on two servings per week at most of any sort of red meat, and we're always choosing very lean meats, things like tenderloin or 93% lean grass-fed steak. And that's something that I feel very strongly is not going to promote risk for things like colon cancer or cancers in general based on the research that I've seen. I think we really need to think about the quality of the meat. We need to think about how much saturated fat is in it, and we need to think about how it's cooked. But when you look at the research, they're not necessarily accounting for all of those factors. Things like processed meats we know have a direct correlation. So that's things like bacon and sausages. Those are going to increase our risk for cancer, especially colon cancer. Next up is avoiding excess alcohol intake. So alcohol consumption has been linked to increased risk of many different types of cancers, but understanding how alcohol impacts the colon is really important. So alcohol and the metabolites, so when we metabolize it, the products of that can directly damage the cells lining the colon. It also promotes inflammation in the colon, which is a known risk factor for colon cancer and can promote the growth and proliferation of abnormal cells. We also know that alcohol consumption can disrupt the delicate balance of the gut microbiota, which is that community of microorganisms that are in our digestive tract. And we've also seen in research that this imbalance in the gut microbiota composition has been implicated in colorectal carcinogenesis. Production of reactive oxygen species. Alcohol metabolism generates these reactive oxygen species, which are highly reactive to molecules that can cause damage to cellular components, including DNA, proteins, and lipids. It also disrupts folate levels, which are really important for DNA synthesis and methylation, 
and it impacts our hormones, things like insulin-like growth factor, which have been shown to be implicated in colorectal cancer development. So eat more plants, reduce your intake of processed meats, prioritize those cruciferous vegetables, and reduce your alcohol intake as much as possible. Now let's go into supplements. Probiotics and prebiotics, which have numerous benefits for the gut microbiome, also have been shown to support the risk and actually be a great adjunct in the prevention or treatment for colon cancer. And the reason for this partly is due to the fact that probiotics can help to support overall gut health and reduce inflammation. They can help to rebalance the gut if somebody has dysbiosis going on, and they can also help to increase the support for our gut lining. There are certain strains in particular that have been noted in research. Some of the lactobacillus strains like lactobacillus plantarum and acidophilus as well as bifidobacterium longum. So these probiotics, they can help to support the gut by reducing inflammation. They can restore balance. They've been shown to help improve our gut lining. And I'm so happy to say that most of these strains are incorporated into my daily probiotic, the the Biota Complete and the Fem Balance. Now, probiotics can also be found in different foods, right? We can find them in fermented foods. Now, unfortunately, we can't specifically target different strains of bacteria when we're eating food. The label is not going to tell you exactly what you're getting, which is why supplements can be beneficial. But there's also good research to show that increasing intake of fermented foods has been shown to lower inflammation in the gut. So sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, things like kefir may also help to reduce our risk for colon cancer. Other supplements, including vitamin D, this one comes up, I feel like, in every episode that I do when it comes to any sort of cancer or risk factor for any chronic disease, because adequate vitamin D levels have been associated with reduced risk of inflammation and all different types of cancer. Vitamin D acts like a hormone, but it's important for so many different processes of the body. And what we've seen in the research is that low vitamin D has been associated with increased risk of colon cancer. The second supplement is omega-3 fatty acids. These have anti-inflammatory properties and individuals who are not eating these regularly from their diet may benefit from an omega-3 supplement. The next one is psilobinin, which is a flavonolignin extracted from milk thistle. It's the main component of the silymarin, a supportive medication used to treat many individuals with liver disease. And there are several in vitro and in vivo studies that have shown its chemoprotective roles in skin cancer, lung cancer, prostate, bladder, and colon cancer because it's been able to specifically target DNA mutation mechanisms like proliferation metastatic signaling, and different inflammation processes. This is something that I always have Jordan do or take if he is going to be drinking, you know, for like a bachelor weekend or something like that, because it is incredibly protective of the liver. And we're actually going to talk more about how the liver and colon cancer are connected. 
but this is something you can just incorporate as an herbal tea. And that's my preferred way of incorporating a lot of different things into my lifestyle is trying to avoid as many supplements as possible. Over supplementing is not good for your liver. It's not good for your gut. Plus, who knows half the time what is in any of those supplements. So herbal teas can be a really great way to get something like milk thistle into your routine. Always make sure to speak to your doctor. Even things like herbs and natural medicine can still interfere with things like blood clotting or medications. So make sure that you're always checking on that. EGCG, epigallocatechin gallate. It's a type of catechin and a potent antioxidant found primarily in green tea. And this has been shown to have antioxidant benefits, preventing reactive oxygen species, And additionally, it's been shown in research to decrease the expression of growth factors, blocking cancer cell proliferation and metastasis formation. So drinking one to two cups of green tea per day minimum is a great way to support your risk for colon cancer and cancers in general. So let's dive into fatty liver disease. This is something I've never really talked about on my episode and something that's actually quite correlated with the severity and progression of colon cancer. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a condition characterized by the accumulation of fat in the liver cells, specifically in individuals who do not consume excessive amounts of alcohol. And the reason why they call it non-alcoholic fatty liver is because individuals who consume excess alcohol are at risk for fatty liver. But in this case, the cause is related to something else. About 25% of U.S. adults have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that number is continuing to go up. Most people think that in order to have a fatty liver, you have to be overweight or obese and have all these unhealthy lifestyle habits. But in my practice, I've seen individuals who are lean, who exercise, who eat generally well, actually still have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In addition to being linked with colorectal cancer metastasis, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is also associated with increased risk of several other types of cancers, like liver cancer. So colon cancer often spreads to the liver, and once it does, it becomes really difficult to treat. The issue when you have a fatty liver is that cancer is more likely to set up camp in your liver when you have this condition. Scientists don't quite understand why, but a new study has shown that fatty liver disease appears to create this perfect environment for metastatic colorectal cancer to thrive in your liver. So what are the signs that you have a fatty liver? The first one is steatitosis. Steatitosis is a medical term that is used to describe the abnormal accumulation of fat within cells, in this case, the liver cells. This is diagnosed through a CT scan or magnetic resonance imaging. Some signs of fatty liver also might include elevated liver enzymes. So there are two liver enzymes, ALT and AST, which are done as part of a blood test. And when these are high... This indicates that the liver cells are damaged or inflamed. 
Other symptoms might include abdominal pain in the upper right abdomen where your liver is located. You might feel very fatigued. You might have insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, meaning high levels of things like triglycerides and LDL cholesterol. And you may also have issues with iron levels in your body. For example, excess iron accumulation in the liver has been linked to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So if you're noticing very abnormal levels in your iron lab work, ferritin and iron, this is something to dig deeper into. On the GI map that we use, we also check for an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. Research shows that high levels of this enzyme, beta-glucuronidase, are associated with increased development of colorectal cancer, which is very interesting because this enzyme is also related to phase two liver detoxification. There are ways that we can support phase two detoxification. There are ways to directly lower beta-glucuronidase, things like dietary changes, N-acetylcysteine, calcium D-glucurate. These are all direct ways to support liver detox as well as lower beta-glucuronidase levels. So how do we prevent fatty liver disease? Exercise, achieving a healthy weight, optimizing our diet, these all play a significant role in the development and progression of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. There's also a strong link between poor gut health and poor liver health because imbalances in the bacteria in the gut have been strongly linked in research to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. A big factor in developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the types of carbohydrates that we consume, how we balance them in our diets, and how our body is responding to the ingestion of these carbohydrates. So if your diet is high in refined carbohydrates, low in fiber, your blood sugar is imbalanced, you're skipping meals, you're eating large portions of refined carbohydrates in one sitting. If you're doing this over a long period of time, this can actually increase the amount of fat deposition in your liver, which is going to impact every aspect of your health. So a nice balanced diet, rich in fiber, whole foods, those types of things, incredibly beneficial for supporting the liver and colorectal cancer. Several years ago, I made a post on social media that said, congratulations, if you have a liver and a kidney, you're detoxing and you don't need extra support. And at the time, I was naive. I didn't understand that what I started to see in practice now that I've been doing this for so many years is that a lot of us actually need extra support when it comes to detoxification. And this is just the reality of the world that we live in. Now, there are certain people that might have a clean slate of health, but the majority of us do need extra support for our liver because we're ingesting pesticides, we're putting toxins on our body, they're in our environment, our guts are imbalanced. And so things like the milk thistle tea that I mentioned, dandelion tea, artichoke, Sulfur-containing foods like garlic and onions, antioxidant-rich foods like kiwis and sunflower seeds and lots of berries that are colorful, these are all great 
simple ways to support our detoxification. Um, And then incorporating lots of anti-inflammatory foods and herbs like fatty fish, turmeric, ginger, making sure that we're managing our stress, getting adequate sleep, um, and addressing any underlying inflammatory conditions, which might be caused by having specific food sensitivities or environmental toxins or allergies basically working with someone who's very well educated in looking at your entire toxin load. And the last thing that I want to talk about is lifestyle factors to reduce your risk of colon cancer. The first one is physical activity. Exercise has been shown to reduce the risk of all types of cancers. So we want to aim for at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. Stop smoking. It's a known risk factor for colon cancer. This includes vaping. You know, people are switching from smoking cigarettes to vaping, and now they're ingesting polyethylene glycol, and God knows what else is in some of these things. But smoking of any kind, including marijuana, is carcinogenic. Maintaining a healthy weight is also incredibly important for optimal health. Individuals who were obese or had excess body fat were at increased risk for colon cancer. On the other side of the coin, being underweight, having an eating disorder, also incredibly harmful to your health. I think a lot of people don't mention that aspect. We just focus on the negative side of being overweight or having excess body fat, but not having enough or having an eating disorder can also increase your risk for cancer. And the last one is so important. I wish that You could all see the amount of research that I've seen on sleep deprivation and how harmful it is to our health. Circadian rhythm is so important to our body operating on a schedule. And during these different periods of our body's circadian rhythm schedule, specific things happen that help to reduce inflammation, clear away dead, damaged DNA cells, which essentially is protecting us from cancer. So some authors have investigated carcinogenesis related to chronic sleep deprivation or disruption in circadian rhythm. One study in particular, Hruskiti et al. showed that night shift workers, both men and women, have a 50% increased risk of developing colon cancer. It's been proven that cell proliferation, differentiation, apoptosis, and DNA repair mechanisms have different day and night activities. So it's really important that we are getting high quality sleep and that we're trying to align it with our circadian rhythm. Some of the biggest disruptors of circadian rhythm, the first one is light exposure, especially in the form of artificial light from electronic devices. We've got our smartphones, our tablets, our computers, These all disrupt our circadian rhythm. So I wear blue light blocking glasses if I absolutely have to be working closer to bedtime, but really trying to eliminate screen time at a minimum two hours before you go to bed. Getting up, viewing sunlight or bright light within the first 30 minutes of waking up can help support your circadian rhythm. Have a consistent sleep pattern. Try the best that you can with your lifestyle to make sure that you're getting into bed at a relatively typical time for you and try to stick to that schedule. Chronic stress and anxiety can disrupt our circadian rhythm by activating the body's stress response. 
uh, avoiding exercise, especially high intensity exercise close to bedtime, and try to eat your last meal at least two to three hours before you go to bed, as this can interfere with some of the different things that happen when our body is trying to be in that rest and digest mode overnight. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I really hope that you'll share this episode with a friend or a family member, someone who is maybe not aware of colon cancer and the risk, or maybe they have inflammatory bowel disease, or you know that they've had rectal bleeding or abdominal pain, anyone that could benefit from having this information so that we can help people stay educated on something that can be prevented with early detection. I got a message on social media from somebody who said that their sister died at the age of 30 for colon cancer that was misdiagnosed for a year. And so it's really important that as patients, we are able to advocate, understand the signs and potential risk factors, and do everything we can to optimize our health. So thank you for tuning in. As always, don't forget to share the health.